This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 77 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking fabulous in fuchsia. <laughs> or is it princely in plum? I'm not sure. We have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Well, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. And over in Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis Sophia Maria. I've got those two wrong. <laughs> Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen, everybody. It's only episode 77. Smiling, <laughs> Smiling delightfully. Did you enjoy your day yesterday? Oh, I did. We had, we're a little bit out of kilter, but we had our snowdrop event at Allen's yesterday in our world. By the time you see this, it'll be a few weeks ago, but we're both kind of tired from all of the fun and catching up with the likes of Val Bourne and Brian Ellis and Joe Sharman. The list goes on. It was wonderful. So um, if we saw you there, thank you very much for coming along. I hope you've got lovely snowdrops and other lovely things. Today, less about snowdrops, more about heavenly houseplants with the queen of all things houseplant, um, podcaster, I mean, I would say fellow podcaster, but you are so further along the podcasting journey than us. <laughs> On the ledge host, writer of articles in The Garden, in the FT, in The Guardian, um, writing a book that looks very exciting. Jane Perone, welcome to Talking Dirty. Do you have any middle names to share? Well, I'm feeling very um, missing out. I'm missing out here because I've only got one middle name, which is Lindsay. Um, so there we go. I was going to be Lindsay Jane. I'm very glad that I wasn't. Not because I have anything against the name Lindsay, but I just I like names that you don't have to explain to people. And Jane is a name that you do not have to explain. Everybody knows um, what that is. So, yeah. Otherwise, Lindsay, it's like it's got a D in it. It's got an E in it. You know, you don't want to have to go down that route. So, wow. yes, in that sense, it's it works very well. But yes, I mean, only I've only got one. I mean, I feel deprived. What were my parents <laughs> thinking? Well, as somebody who spent an entire life telling people, no, I'm not called Claudia. No, it's not Thorgeous uh, yeah. or I don't even know what other, uh, it's, it's not, I've not mispronounced Louise or something. It's Thordis, but there we go. Uh, it's, it's become but a it, conversation Yeah, it's a conversation starter. And you know what? I always remember Cliff Richard used to say, well, the reason why I called myself Cliff Richard and not Cliff Richards is that then people say Cliff Richards and then I have to correct them. And so my name is heard twice on the radio or whatever. So I thought that was quite clever. So maybe that's yeah. actually a good strategy to have a name that requires a little bit of explanation. Now, I said you've been podcasting for a long time. Is it four years or something on the ledge? It's my just gosh. So many episodes. <laughs> so many. It's going to be five years. I think it's going to be five years. Yeah, it's going to be five years in February. End of, Feb end, end of this month. My gosh. <laughs> end of this month. I'm living in the past. End of this month, it'll be five years, which is absolutely mind-blowing. And how did it start? How did you think, I'm going to create this podcast? Because I suppose five years ago was the beginning, really, or around <clears> the beginning <throat> of that the houseplant mania that we live in at the moment. Yes, it was. And what happened was at the time I was working for The Guardian as gardening editor and I was really in, I loved listening to podcasts about all different kinds of things. Like most people, I started off with the podcast Serial and listened to that 
and, and various gardening podcasts as well. There were some very early gardening podcasts out there at the time. And so I ended up persuading The Guardian to make a gardening podcast with me and Alice Fowler, which I loved doing. And I would, yeah, I would still stand up and say those episodes were great. We had great fun doing the, those episodes. But um, after a couple of seasons, The Guardian decided not to do any more. And I was kind of sad and thought, I want to do more podcasting. It's so much fun. And I could see that houseplants were on the rise at that point. And I just thought, gosh, if I don't do a houseplant podcast now, I want to be the first one. I, want to, I don't care if other people do it after me, but I want to be the first. So I just threw caution to the wind and started my own podcast on the ledge without really knowing what I was doing. And, and uh, 200 odd episodes later, here we are. I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Well, I think your professional microphone arm that Oh yeah, can see I'm on sorry this is version. in shot. Um this is I should have arranged this better so you're not having to look at this boom arm. But anyway, oh, I think it's it looks all cool. Good. <laughs> I'm a radio person. I love to see a microphone. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, it's funny the whole houseplant journey because Alan, we've often talked about this. I mean, your love of houseplants is normally because you've got glass houses and things, the ones that come in and do something ostentatious for a few weeks or months and then go dormant and you can put them somewhere else. Um, <laughs> well, you know, that's a luxury, though, to have that, I have to admit. Um, and, you know, there are plants. I mean, I've, I've got um, strobilanthes that flowers in the middle of winter and I, I bring it in. But this is a huge, great pot. And it's one of those plants that grows so big. And I was looking at it this morning and I thought, I've grown you for enough years now. I think I'm going to put you in the garden. And if you die, you die. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's invariably what happens. But there are certain pot, pot plants that for people that don't have the luxury of greenhouses and things, I mean, there, there's quite a number of pot plants, and I think, Jane, you'll probably agree with this, that are capable of growing in our houses and not requiring huge amounts of light. Yeah, and I think, I, mean, I love plants that go dormant because it's when they're dying back, you're not thinking, oh, no, it's dying back. You're thinking, oh, great, you know, because then you get a whole flush. of. I'm thinking of oxalis, actually, here, yeah, because, yeah. you know, you get this lovely flush of new leaves. And inevitably, I've got um, a little oxalis with um, yellow veins. It's called oxalis corombosa aurea reticulata, which is a terrible name. And it goes dormant. It always gets spider mite in the summer. And then it goes dormant. And then when it comes back, it doesn't have spider mite anymore. So yeah. it's great because it kind of it gives your plants a chance to have a reset. I also really love a plant that is not very popular, which is Smithiantha. Now, these are um, because Gesneriad and they're the same. They just die away. And in fact, I've got one that I kind of forgot about for a couple of years in the back of a cupboard. And you take it out and those little rhizomes are still absolutely fine. And you can start them off again. It's, so okay, I just isn't fate so strange? I mean, I was looking the other day at calerias, coalerias, um, which are related to smithianthus and also archimenes, which is known as the hot water plant. I mean, they're all, they all have that thing in common where they make this tiny little rhizomes that look a bit like rat, rat droppings, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Underneath they're the quite disturbing. I don't know why they're not more popular because I no, think I that's I fantastic. I think flowering houseplants are really neglected and I don't really know why, but um, yeah, I love those kind of plants because as I say, I, I can just feel no guilt about them dying back. And sometimes I'll just, you know, an oxalis dying back at some point and just think I'll just stick it away for a bit and then bring it back out and enjoy it again. So yeah, exactly. I, I think that's great. I think what you've actually just done is de demystified something because 
probably quite a lot of people think that, that all the hot water plant tribe, if you like, and the oxalis, they probably think that they are a huge amount of trouble, but they're not. No, I think the thing with those is, as I say, that you've got that backup plan. If they do start to die back, not to worry about it, whatever time of year they're dying back, as long as really, I mean, I guess the what I, the caveat I would say is if you're one of those people who just thinks that, oh, I'm just I just can't stop watering. And there are people like this. It's probably not the plant for you because I'm the other side of I'm a non-waterer. So it's much more likely that my plant's going to dry out. So um, if if you are in that camp, then the camp of overwatering, then you might end up rotting them, which I think is the only way that it's going to be a major problem. But if you're not in that camp and you just let them dry out, they can go in the back of a cupboard and then just set a reminder on your phone or whatever to get them out at some point mm. and they'll be fine. So it's, I think they're quite handy. I know there are some people who probably don't have any storage. If you're living in a small apartment, maybe you don't have any storage for that kind of plant, but um, I think they're, they're really, really handy. And of course, the other great thing about the oxalis is that you can, um, triangularis, you can eat the leaves of oxalis triangularis. And um, I have done, I have eaten the leaves many times uh, and they taste a bit like lemon sherbet, which is quite nice. So, yeah, that's a. I mean, I wouldn't buy I wouldn't eat one you've just bought. But if you've got one that you've had for a long time, try those leaves. Other warning, as I always have to say, they do contain oxalic acid like rhubarb. You'd have to eat about a ton of it to be affected. But I do put that little health warning in there. If you have gout, then you probably don't want to eat oxalis leaves in excess. <laughs> also, people should go and watch your video of you trying various different oxalis leaves because your facial expressions yes, are Yes, that's a good one. That is a good one, especially when I realise that I've eaten some spider mites. But there we go. It's, it's all protein. Protein, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting what you say about um, flowering houseplants because I suppose in the end, a lot of people, they go to garden centres or maybe there are particularly where Alan lives um, Norwich there are loads of houseplant shops and so they get a bit more specialist but I, they mm. they tend to stock what they think people want not always what's easy to look after I suppose it's worth saying mm -hmm. and so people end up a bit like with fashion they end up buying what's readily available and it seems that those flowering ones haven't I suppose because they go dormant maybe I don't know they haven't necessarily made it to to the shelves of, of all of those shops mm. It's a really good point. And I think the, you know, it's unfortunate because as you say, the selection of plants that are widely available in the places that a lot of people buy plants like big box stores and supermarkets are not really the easiest things. I mean, the number of times you see people with, um, a, you know, a, a prayer plant of some kind that is looking miserable and they've bought it from a big box store and you're thinking, why did you start with that as your first house plant? Because really they're not, that straightforward um and so people kind of fall at the first hurdle with a beautiful you know they go and buy a well it's now gapertia but it used to be calathea orbifolia with these beautiful big yeah. leaves and stripes and you're just thinking oh, that was a waste of money um you know because most people struggle to keep those plants looking good in the average home and is that um, a humidity thing because i am somebody yeah. who did exactly that and mm. I've been wondering whether the way to make it, it's actually not looking too bad but they obviously go crispy and is yes. that because they kind of want a dish of pebbles underneath or something yes I mean they are they've got thin leaves that require um, moist air and that's something that is lacking in a lot of homes they, they're quite fussy about how much moisture they have around the roots which people struggle with oftentimes 
this is very, very often the problem with houseplants bought from big box stores is that the substrate they are planted in is not ideal. Um, <laughs> and this is one of the reasons why I always say to people, if you can buy um, plants that have been raised by specialists and they will generally then be in the right substrate. But oftentimes the substrate is, is just really wrong. <laughs> um, it's, too, um, it's too claggy and then it dries out and it's absolutely bone dry. So you're kind of struggling from the very start and that makes your life difficult. And it's the same with cacti and succulents. Oftentimes, if you buy them um, from places like Wilkins, you know, where people buy them, places like Wilkinson's, Tesco's, um, any big box store, they're planted in something that works well in the, in the big computer controlled climate of the nursery, but doesn't really work well in your house. <laughs> yeah. So that's something that you really need to sort of look at when you're thinking about your house plants. And if it's all going wrong, I always say the first thing I say is, you know, we always focus on the top growth, but actually go and look at what's happening on the roots, because that is what is really crucial to the plant. Um, so yeah, take it out of the pot. That's literally the first thing I always say when there's a house plant issue. I think what I love about following you and I, I've delved into all of the most commonly accessible house plants and I'm now sort of starting to try and be a bit more adventurous, but I've just sort of bought readily available things all been mm -hmm. given things by, by Alan. We were laughing about this one yesterday because this is the absolutely enormous Calanco. It's still coming. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Alan, yeah, that's big. Alan gave me that the other mm. half thinks looks like a shrub. Well, it, it does, yeah. but then when I gave it to you, it was a very small cutting. Small plant. Well, I mean, you go. yeah, you see, so you're doing you're doing the right thing. But it's gonna um, flower. So I've put it somewhere very visible, but it is absolutely enormous. But I'm I'm kind of I'm starting to try and and, and branch out. But what I mm. love about following you is all of the like you've just hinted at, all of these amazing tips either about propagation or about how to get the best out of your plants. There was a great one you did about um, doing cuttings and, and, and sort of following along the roots on a, like a plastic see-through, almost like a yogurt mm. pot. I mean, thing, little yeah. things like that, which I don't know why I hadn't thought of them, but I hadn't, and you have, <laughs> and, you sh and you're sharing it. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing that, you know, uh, a lifetime of growing houseplants, I've been in growing houseplants since I was little, um, very little. And so, you know, you pick up a few things along the way. And I've also learned absolutely loads from my listeners. So, you know, I have a, a sort of a global audience out there and they are doing way more exciting things than I am. I mean, they blow my mind constantly with the amazing projects that they are working on and the range of plants they're growing. And so I get lots of ideas from them. And yeah, just simple things like that, really just helpful. But it's oftentimes it's, you know, this, I'll be saying the same things over and over again, like do your research, find out where the plant's from, um, you know, uh, look at the roots, look at the substrate, um, get a magnifying glass. But the other thing I'm constantly saying is get yourself a botanist lens immediately because <laughs> that will really help you spot pests and just other really simple things like, yes, I know it's really trendy to have hanging plants everywhere, but really if you've got, something you're worried about or you're not confident with put it somewhere where you can really get to it and see it because that will make your life so much easier um so it's uh, those kind of simple things you can do um and i think that's <clears throat> what i really love about the show is seeing people then kind of coming back to me and saying oh you saved my plant <laughs> that's a really nice feeling to think that somebody's sort of done a bit of detective work having listened to the show and then figured out what's been going wrong yeah, we must have a look at a couple of your plants. When we were doing yeah. kind of pre-podcast chat, obviously you are 
really in the thick of writing this exciting new book and so I suppose a lot of your time has been taken up with that and so some of my plants yeah. might look a bit under the weather <laughs> it's fine I mean yes the, the, it's that time of year when you know we're, we're recording now in February time of year when houseplants oftentimes are at their least uh, photogenic shall we say um, and yes it's been an interesting time there's a lot of things that need their leaves cleaning a lot of things with a few crispy leaves a lot of things that are due to be repotted so um, it's nice I'm trying to set aside some time every day to do that and I just love propagation so inevitably I'm always propagating lots of stuff but I have I've got a couple of things here to show you I mean I got I'm really into um, Sansevierias and I really one of my great successes last year was I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Colin Walker. He's a great uh, cactus and succulent grower. He's been on my show a couple of times and I did an episode um, with him on Sansevierias, the snake plant uh, family. And he just sent me an absolute load of like bits like this, this massive long leaf, all different species of Sansevieria. Cause I was complaining that none of my Sansevieria flower and so he just sent me all these amazing Sansevierias. And this is what I love about cacti and succulents, that, you know, you can receive this looks like a sort of a green tusk through the post. And then you can stick it in some soil and look, it's growing amazingly. And this is um, this is Sansevieria bella, which I believe is quite a, a free flowering um, Sansevieria. And so you've got the the mature leaf there. And one of the things that blows people's minds about houseplants is how different the foliage can look at different stages in its life. So you can see that the juvenile foliage on this is kind of very different from the adult. It's just starting to put out the more adult foliage. And I just love Sansevierias. They're just, they're so tough and so awesome. And this one apparently has a lot of flowers and smells very sweetly, I think kind of a hyacinth kind of scent. Ooh. So I'm looking forward to that growing. So I've got about a dozen of these different Sansevierias um, from Colin Walker which are doing really nicely. But I'm excited delivery. Yeah. Oh my gosh. A plant deliveries are the best. So that's one thing that I'm, that I really love is um, I really love exchanging cuttings with fellow houseplant enthusiasts. And I mean, I was saying to somebody the other day that I don't think I've ever spent, I might, might be wrong about this, but I don't think I've ever spent more than 20 pounds on a houseplant because um, I do swaps. I swap if I want something rare, I will just swap for it. Um, so that's one. And then also in here, lots of the succulents are in this office over the winter because it's cold in here. And as we know, houseplants, uh, cactine succulents need a cold, dry period. So I've got this beast as well. This is a gasteralo. So this is a, a hybrid between uh, gasteria and an alo. It desperately needs wiping down because, <laughs> because it is covered in spider webs. They're not spider mites. So they are spider webs uh, because it was outside all summer and I haven't had a chance to do anything with it. But look at all these babies. Oh. Again, another thing I love about succulents is their generosity. So when I repot that, I will take some of those babies out. In fact, I've got a couple of people who've reserved a couple of those. And it's just a really nice big, as my children would say, a chonk of a succulent. <laughs> and I do love that. And behind me, I don't think I can show you because they're too... Well, I might be able to show you. This fellow... This is um, a Puntia monocantha. So this is what I try to show people when they get panicky about cacti and succulents, because lots of people, their cactus grows quite big and they get panicky about it. And it has things like, I don't know if you can see at the bottom here, 
corking. So people get very panicky about corking. And so that's a good example to say, look, this is what cactus does as it gets mature. It needs to support its growth. And so you do get this corking at the bottom. But I just love the craziness of this yeah. one. It's a variegated, I don't know if you can see, but it's, it is variegated and it's um, a monstrous form. And so you just get this amazing coloration. Now this has not been watered probably, has been watered maybe once since October. So again, cool and dry. Um, but I just love the craziness of this, this kind of thing. I just it's think such it's such a so character. Cool. I love a character. Plant. That's a real character. And a lot of houseplants, as they get older, they all kind of bigger. Yeah. They do just develop into like people in your house. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I can, people have a love-hate relationship with cacti. Some people really don't go for them. And I can see why, particularly Apuntias, because on, on some of the other Apuntia species, you get these tiny little glockids that stick in your fingers. Um, but they are like, Apuntias are a really, really important um, plant in Mexico and Central America, um, you know, really important economic plant. And so I just think they're just really cool and interesting. The thing about Puntius, though, they they have an enormous range where they can grow, because um, I remember doing a talk at the Oxford Botanic Garden and there mm. on the rockery was an Apuntia. And this was. In the yeah. Middle. Some of them are fine outside in our British. Absolutely. Winters. We have them in the desert here. Yeah. 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 It, it's really quite. And you can. Uh, there's one. The Edinburgh Botanic Garden has uh, an outdoor cactus bed, which is just covered with some perspex. I do have plans. I've got two brick raised beds, which I'm thinking I might uh, populate with agaves and things. Um when I get a chance, because I think I'm going to experiment and see whether that works in my Bedfordshire climate. But yeah, they're amazing plants. And I think people assume that um, cacti and succulents, well, you never need to water them because they're from the desert, but really outside of the winter time, they can drink quite a lot of water. And that's how you get them to grow quite quickly, like this one did. If you water them regularly and they're in that right, correct substrate, which is quite free draining, they actually grow quite fast. So mm. um Yes, as as you say, it's there. They are real characters, um, and uh, yeah, I forgive them for spiking me on a regular basis for that reason. <laughs> I have a collection of cacti that I that I, I use outside on cacti and succulents, which I use outside on stands in the garden as, as a yeah. decorative feature. Um, and I have to say that opuntias are the beasts on there because those spines, when they get too big or too heavy to lift and you're struggling with them and you sort of, it sort of leans into you. My oh God. my gosh. Yeah. Well, I did a lot of research about that when I was writing the book because I did my chapter, there's a chapter of the book on um, uh, the bunny ears, uh, Apuntia, yeah. microdaisies, and and read a lot of medical papers about how to get the those glockids out of the skin. And there's lots of different methods used, but um, and horrible stories about people getting them in their eyes and things. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> it is a, a bit of a. I mean, I've had definitely had ones where they've been in my finger for about a month and then gradually worked themselves out. Um, so yeah, it, it is a peril. You do need to be careful, and I think this is one of the things that people often don't realize about houseplants also apart it's obvious with cacti and succulents when they have spines but um generally you know there are some really poisonous houseplants you do need to take care with pets and small children because some of them are extremely toxic um and you don't have to eat much to land yourself in trouble now most of the time that's not a problem because they're also very very bitter so most of the time you would spit them out but pets and small children 
don't always respond in the same way. So you've got to be a little bit careful um, if you have nibblers in your house of any kind. I mean, fortunately, my children are well, were very well trained from a young age and my dog doesn't touch my plants. So um, it's OK. But yeah, I have heard sort of horror stories about cats eating things and ending up at the vets and it can get very expensive. So we're talking about cacti today and cacti and succulents that had an enormous resurgence. Mm. But when I go back to my childhood, I started off by collecting cacti on my bedroom windowsill. And that's what people did. And you could, you could buy for about sixpence, you could get a tiny little proper terracotta pot with a little blob of fuzzy nurse in it and they mm-hmm. came in different colors you know there'd be sort of bronzy ones and green ones all the rest of it and that's how I started and I'm some of my cat I had when I was terribly young and then you still have them and that's, that's pretty well, I, mean, yes. I was the same yes children. exactly and you'd go to You'd go to like, um, uh, uh, I would go to Cheney's Garden Centre because I grew up in Buckinghamshire. Cheney's Garden Centre was my local garden centre and I'd buy cacti there. I'd also get them from Woolworths and yes. jumble sales as well. Lots of jumble sales. And I, ha- I mean, I remember my first cactus flowering and just being absolutely blown away by it. And yeah, it was great. But back then, you know, you if you wanted a sort of a, ca- a catalogue from a cactus specialist, you know, you'd send off your stamped address envelope, wouldn't you? Yes, uh, yeah. And it was delayed gratification. Um, whereas now we're sort of used to having, every- oh, I've seen it on Instagram. I'm going to click it and I've got it two days later. So we're, we're in a different kind of um, mode with our plants. But yeah, that's how I started really with cacti and succulents were my absolute favourite. But I'm always confused. There are some cacti and succulents that I remember being freely available that you can't get so frequently now, um, particularly things like um, the rat tail cacti and the monkey tail cacti. Oh, yeah. yeah. They don't seem to be so available. But um, I, I did when I spoke to interviewed a, a cactus nursery owner recently, he was saying, Oh, I'm doing a lot of propagation of, um, of those right now. So I was like, Hey, they're coming back. So hopefully. Isn't that something um, called a ripsalis? Oh my gosh. I love ripsalis. Yes. yes. And I think they are, they are really gaining popularity. I've got um, about, I don't know, about half dozen, maybe a few more varieties of ripsalis and they are just, they love my house. They're just really great plants. And I do recommend ripsalis for people beginning because they're so tough. Um, They really are great plants and they kind of blow people's minds rather because they are cacti, but they're epiphytic cacti. So they're growing in trees, generally in um, South America and people don't expect cacti to be growing in trees in South America. That just kind of, is not an image they're expecting, but that, that means they're good as houseplants, as so many epiphytes are as houseplants because well, they have. A, I mean, if you want the same, if you want, if you want something that's loud and proud and it's going to blow your oh mind, my gosh. get an epiphyllum hybrid because I mean the big, big flowers uh, yeah. don't last for long, but. My God, do they punch a pack a punch with their colour? Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. I've got one that I was given last year that I'm waiting for it to flower, and and um, it they they are really beautiful, and they don't take up that much room in terms of pot because they because they're epiphytes, they don't have big root balls, so they're really good plants, and they're just so yeah. easy. Um, but I did take I did do a talk to a gardening group um a while back, and I took along I can't think which ripsalis it was. But I did get some comments from the older um, generation of people that they they just looked at it and they were like, it just looks like a load of green sticks. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> impressed by the ripsalis at all. Um, but I don't know which ripsalis I have, but mine is so strokeable. It's it's so sort of fuzzy and lovely. Oh, um, mm, but I yeah, don't know. There's a- 
there's some good. there are some hairy hairy ones and some some smooth ones they're they're a really fascinating family my favorite is um ripsalis paradoxa which is the one that looks i think it's called chain plant which has this kind of very interesting shaped i mean it's actually not a leaf it's a flattened stem that's one of my favorites um but they're just really easy great plants i've i've just absolutely love ripsalis and um yeah, they're a good start. That's what they should be selling, you know, in the big box stores because they're really, really easy to grow um, <laughs> as opposed to all those calatheas that are going to end up in the bin. Which are also yeah. expensive, the calathea mm. types. I mean, they're not cheap when people go and buy like a 40 pound one of those. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. Do your research before you go out and spend money. I mean, it's very easy to impulse buy and I've done it in the past. It's very, very tempting to just see something gorgeous and want it. I mean, you know, my heart always sinks when somebody says, I've seen this wonderful plant. And I've just bought it. It's um, It's got these big, massive pink flowers, drooping pink flowers. And I go, oh, my God, you haven't bought a medanilla, have you? <laughs> oh, why have you done this to yourself? Because, you know, they're gorgeous and everyone looks at them and thinks they're amazing, but they're really hard to keep unless you've got kind of a tropical greenhouse. <laughs> And they're really, really hard. And so people then get very disappointed with, with their medanilla not, not thriving. I also say to people, on the other hand, uh, sort of playing devil's advocate here, what I do say is don't feel like you have to like what everyone else likes. So if you look at this cactus and think, what the actual hell, that's horrible, fine. But find something that gets you excited and don't feel like you have to copy other people's trends and go with what the trendy plant at the moment is. You know, I mean... African violets. I mean, maybe they're <laughs> never going to come in fashion again, but I love an African violet. You know, I really I do. Just, literally, that at that moment, I in my mind, I said African violet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I've got some, some people I follow on Instagram who are like the least likely African violet growers in the world, but they are hugely into them. And, you know, um, the Russians are massively into African violets. Eastern Europeans are really, really big on amazing. There's some amazing breeders there, which you can follow on Instagram. And again, like it's just in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it's like fashion. Absolutely. I think one of the things that people probably. When they're starting out with houseplants, uh, first of all, very, very old one from the Victorian period, Aspidestra. Well, Aspidestra has it was known as the urn plant. No, no, it wasn't. What was it called? cast iron plant or something because it put up with the most abysmal conditions which was dark and dry somebody yeah. gave me one once and I wasn't in the least bit pleased and I planted it in the garden it's 25 years ago it's still there yes <laughs> it's grown and it, it's all right the leaves get a bit marked but today there's so many different varieties of aspidestris so if you've got a, a dark place that's a very good plant and another one I, I would say for low light levels is clivias Yes. And I um, had the national collection holder um, uh, on the show a while ago talking yeah. about clivias. And it was amazing because they really have been very neglected, but they're coming back. And there's some amazing new cultivars, variegated leaves and also different colours of flowers, more yellow flowers coming through. Uh, but yeah, and all, I, I mean, you sometimes see them in Chinese uh, takeaways, don't you, clivias? <laughs> yeah. And there's some gorgeous ones. People have got um, people who listen to the show have sent me pictures of amazing clivias they've had for absolutely years. And again, they're one of those plants where you do need a little bit of knowledge in terms of when to give them that dormant period in order to initiate flowering. But they are bang for your buck. You're absolutely right. They're gorgeous. Really. Well, if you've plants. got if you if you've got a courtyard or a, or a garden, do what I do. I mean, bung them outside in mm. shade in the summer when there's no frost. 
leave them there, water them, feed them and all the rest of it, bring them back into the house about the end of October and then you don't water mm. until you see flower buds, which is just usually around about just after Christmas. Then you start watering again. Yeah, they're, they're really lovely plants and I think underrated. So I hope they'll come back. I think like the Aspidistra, they're quite still quite ex- relatively expensive to buy. Um, and I think that sort of possibly puts people off. But they are one of those wonderful plants like the Aspidistra that people share around. So I heard lots of stories from listeners who had 100 year old aspidistras that were, you know, divisions of of a parent or grandparents plant. And I love those stories of um, plants that have been around the block a bit. And um, I love giving away plants and sharing plants um, and all of that side of things. I think it's just so um, rewarding. And um, yeah, so if I come to anyone's house, I will be like, bringing you cuttings and expecting you to give me cuttings. <laughs> Although I'm also, I'm also very, I, I mean, I, I got, I'm really into Hoyas as well. And I have got some Hoyas that just won't flower because whenever somebody comes around, they always want a cutting and I'm like, okay, but you know, Hoyas, the um, flowering part of the plant, the peduncle as it's a brilliant name, it, it remains it doesn't fall off so if you if you take a cutting and it's got a peduncle on it then you're kind of pl- sending your plant back to square one so I do have some Hoyas that don't really flower as much as they should for that reason which is a bit of a shame <laughs> but it is great that a lot of these house plants are so easy to grow from cuttings and I think loads and loads of people who maybe mm. are in a flat have been sort of experimenting with that sticking them in water and yeah. getting this real love of propagation and, and starting to swap plants with their friends and actually mm. um I suppose when people have tiny courtyard gardens in London or any any city or a balcony, um, a lot of these plants you can kind of put out during the summer, like Alan said, and then bring in as houseplants in the winter. Yes. So um, th- it doesn't always work. I mean, I'm certainly starting to try down the begonia route and I'm very worried about what's going to happen when I bring them back in next winter. And actually before the podcast, Jane and I were talking about some of the slightly sad begonias in houses up and down the country. Yes. I mean, I I have had a begonia revelation in the past year or so. I used to really struggle with um, begonias, particularly the the Rex types, but I have again learned from listeners and, you know, they sort of said to me, you know, you need to give them a really free draining. You need to water them more, but at the same time, give them a really free draining substrate. So somebody called, a guy called Tom Cranham, who's a brilliant uh, begonia grower, he sent me a begonia and he gave me some spare substrate that he uses which is a mix it's a really interesting mix it's got akadama in it which is a traditional bonsai material um, substrate and various other things and he said just water it more but put it in this very free draining substrate so i have um sort of big dishes like salad bowl dishes with several individual begonia pots expanded clay pebbles at the bottom and i have to stop my usual I'm never going to water anything approach and actually water them more generously. The excess water goes through into the expanded clay pebbles. And then obviously that increases humidity around the plant and they, they're doing really well. It has been a revelation. So I finally able to grow lots of these begonias that I've been killing in the past. And that seems to be the answer for me. So there you go. That might help you with that Rex begonia. But then again, you know, again, it's very strange with plants. Sometimes you'll go to somebody's house who is not a particular plant person, and you'll see this one plant and be like, flipping heck, how did you manage to grow that? And I remember going to a house in Wales on holiday, sort of a, a 
bed and breakfast. And they had this incredible, massive Rex begonia on the side. And I'm just looking at it going, how, how are you doing that? And they're like, oh, just chuck some water at it occasionally. And I just couldn't get my head around it. But sometimes people just find that right spot for a plant and it works. So always be prepared to sort of bend and break the rules if it's working for you. Yeah. Interesting you should say about the humidity thing and the the clay pebbles, because something that I cannot get enough of from from following you is um, your propagation box. Oh, yeah. I've actually got one here. I've got one here. Please, can we talk about this? Well, this is this is a pit. This really needs attending to because (laughs) like I have not touched this in about three months. So this is a smaller one. I have got some bigger ones, but this one is made out of a takeaway tray. So can you see, it's like one of those kind of bento box takeaway trays. And it's just got um, damp perlite in the bottom. And then I just chuck things in here. Sorry, I'm not doing a very good job here. Let me take that out of the way. I just chuck things in here um, and see what happens. So for example, right now I've got a load of another Gizneriad family member. This is Epicia, the lace violet. And look, it's got a bit mad here. Um, So this is an Epicia, which like, I mean, this is totally ready to go in a pot. Um, But it's just been sitting in here. And these Epicias are interesting because they grow these stolons and baby plants. So that's fine. And then I've got this slightly um, sad looking, but it will be fine. uh, Begonia solimutata, which has grown baby leaves there. So this can all be potted up very easily. But it's just sat there for months, not being worried about so yeah look the little sort of takeaway tray there and I've also got my all-time favorite begonia here which is um the beefsteak begonia which is a real this is a bit like the aspidistra a real heritage plant with these massive um red backed kidney shaped leaves leathery really easy if you can't grow begonias grow this one and I don't know if I can even get it out of here because it's so rooted in but that will make a new plant so this is just a really easy way you can just chuck cuttings in here put the lid on and you're creating a little mini greenhouse which until the plants are rooted will be absolutely fine the only trick other also with propagating things like this is that you do need to recognize that when they come out of here and go into soil they are going to be in, in a bit of a shock situation so i would tend to pop these up and then put them in a much bigger clear plastic box to gradually grow in and then I would start exposing them to normal conditions after that. But yeah, I, and the other thing I love doing, I mean, I'm so jealous of your glass houses, Alan, because <laughs> I just love going into a glass house and just having a little sniff <laughs> and the warm fog. And you do get that even with these. So it's yeah. like a little bit of I know a, what you mean. Oh, it's just so nice. I just if I go to a garden with a greenhouse, I will just go in there and just stand there just breathing in the delightful <laughs> warm fog for a few minutes. And I uh, feel so much better. So, yeah, I, I I love propagating. And again, it's just so much fun. It means if somebody says to me, oh, I like your Apicias or your Begonia, I can say, well, here you go. Here's one to have. And I was really excited because one of your prop boxes had a bit of hair's foot fern in it. Yeah. And 
a, a dear friend of Alan and, and I, uh, Ian Roof, gave me one of these years ago and I put it in my mum's house and it looks so happy and nice there. I've never wanted to bring it to this house. But now I'm thinking clearly I can have a go of yeah. propagating my own. It never occurred to me before. For so easy. Oh, they are. I mean, they are the only fern I grow because I'm a fern. Um, I mean, I should really actually do what I've done even with the begonias for my ferns. But uh, I, that's I'm a fern killer because I don't water enough. So but that is a really good fern. And you can literally just cut one of those tarantula like um, rhizomes off and stick it in a prop box and you've got another plant. It's it's brilliant they're so much fun some people find that plant quite disturbing though if you're a tarantula phobe <laughs> i've been i've taken it to talks and people have couldn't look at it they could not look at it because it looks so much like a tarantula's legs so just to be wary of that if you have any arachnophobes around but i love that fern it's so it's such a good one it's such a good one yeah at least one of my friends probably won't come around if i put that somewhere prominent <laughs> so i'll uh, send it upstairs <laughs> um I, I mean, this is so, so much inspiration. I um, I feel like before we move on to Flomo, we should talk about your book. I don't know how far away we are from you finishing Legends of the Leaf. Well, um, yes, the manuscript is done. But as anyone who's written a book will know, that's not the end of the story. So um, it, I'm hoping I don't have a publication date. Uh, it now has to be edited and laid out. The illustrations are already done by a lovely lady called Helen Entwistle. And um, I've been, it's been a delight to work with her. And she's done an illustration for each of the 25 plants that I've profiled. Hopefully the book will be out by the end of the year, but I don't have a publication date yet. But uh, it's a bit of a dream come true, really, because this is a book that I always wanted to read. And... <laughs> <laughs> and now I've managed to kind of write it myself, which is very exciting. So it's it's great. But it, it was hard work because I was trying to bring together lots of different threads about each plant that I was writing about. So scientific, cultural, artistic, culinary um, and medicinal and so on. And oftentimes with houseplant books, you know, you'll get the same the same basic information trotted out over and over again, which is all really useful and good you know, not really going into the kind of level of detail that, <laughs> that I've gone into. So if you like, like go a deep dive into houseplants, then that's what this is going to be. I cannot wait. It sounds absolutely amazing. Um, so you, your Instagram and all your wonderful houseplants regularly gives me FLOMO. If anyone's joining us for the first time, FLOMO is a feeling I'm sure you get, a fear of missing out about a flower or a plant. It might even be something you had before and you killed. That happens to Alan. Sometimes he, he, we talk about a yeah. plant and he's like, I've had this. I want it back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um for me, it was your Escianthus. Um, you you did a kind of plant profile. You sat down and talked about this Escianthus uh, lipstick vine, but it wasn't a red one. It was kind of orangey, uh, yes. little tubular flowers. Yeah. And this amazing mottly black kind of leaf. What was it called? Um, black, black Pagoda. Black Pagoda. Yeah, that's a beautiful plant. Really nice leaves and interesting flowers. Um Yes, that's a lovely, really nice plant. Another member of the Gesneriad family. I mean, I'm propping for the Gesneriads hard because they're just amazing. So, yeah, that's a lovely plant. I'm easy to. I um I'd already put my Dibley order in. So Dibley's order. I've had to um 
I've had to think about whether or not I can do another one or add that in because I did not <laughs> order a plug plant of that. So uh, I've, I've, I might have to do something about that. But thank you for the inspiration on that front because I've got a pot I got for Christmas that is calling out for a plant and I've been waiting for something special. So nice. That, that might nice. Be it. What about you? Obviously, you have a lot of plants and you've been, you know, growing I mean, outside and in we haven't talked about outside plants I mean you're very proficient yeah. outside gardening as well so is there anything you're kind of hankering after at the moment oh my gosh always <laughs> I mean one I'll tell you two things first a, a plant that I have loved and killed is a tragic story I had a beautiful stag's horn fern that got quite big and I left it outside too long in the autumn and it got frosted and died and that was it was a it was beautiful and I really to this day regret it deeply because it was just so tragic so I'd like another stag's horn fern because they're really quite easy uh, as ferns go they're really quite easy they don't need a lot of care but they do not like to be covered in frost <laughs> um then the other thing that I'm always apart from gizneriads and flowering plants the other thing I'm always banging on about is things that are called ivy that are not heterohelix because yeah. I mean, maybe, Alan, I don't know what your place is like inside, but maybe you have some lovely unheated, cool, unheated porches and things where you can put things like heterohelix. But on the whole, if you've got a sort of a, a modern home, you struggle with heterohelix because it just doesn't like the dry air. So oh. I love all the kind of things that are called ivy that aren't ivy. So I'm thinking of things like I have one... Uh, I've just recently got hold of a couple of senecios, trailing senecios. But the what the plant that I have had in the past as a child, but not for many years, is the delightful intergeneric hybrid Fats Hederalisii. Yeah. I yeah. love that plant. And I haven't, it, it's not actually that. I mean, it's probably easier to find as a garden plant, but I really want one again. So I'm going to have to go easy. hunting. To find as a garden plant, there's both a silver and a variegated leaf, uh, yes. a silver and a golden variegated version of it too. I've used it. It's not actually a climber. Being an intergeneric hybrid between the two, it it it's got the smaller leaves, which mm -hmm. are characteristic of, of ivy, shall we say, um, and the non-climbing ability of the fatsia. Yeah, I just love I love the look of it, and I you know I mean my classic Bible is the. Um, Dr. Hesseon's houseplant expert. And I've just like, I mean, I've got it circled in there from when I was a child. I just think it's a really interesting plant and I'd like to have it again. I think um, I need to, I mean, I haven't been going to many garden centers because of, you know, lockdown and yeah. whatnot. So I yeah. need to just hit the garden center and uh, pick one up. Um, but yeah, that's a really good plant. I think, I think it's underrated. And similarly, it, all of the- It's also underrated and its use in the garden is underrated as well, mm. because um, it's a scandent plant. It doesn't climb. If it will, it will climb if you help it up. But if you've got a small trellis or a low wall anywhere facing north in the shade, it's a, mm. cra it's a cracking plant. It's fabulous. Yeah, anything that can kind of go in a bit of dry shade is um, yeah. is welcome, isn't it? Gosh, yeah. <laughs> that was when I was gardening editor at the Guardian. That was people's main question was what will grow. They wanted flowering evergreen climbers for north facing walls yeah, and things for dry shade. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what should i give you my i should well let's go outside momentarily and i will give you my recommendation for north facing for evergreen flowering north facing wall climbers and it's not very possibly not very well not that hard to get hold of pileostegia vibonoides is yeah. my go-to for that thing it's evergreen it flowers and it's very attractive to pollinators 
Um, and it does fine on a north-facing dry wall. So there's yeah. my top tip on that. I don't know if you and agree with that, Alan. I'll tell you something else about it, Jane. And that's the fact that it intrigues people because they won't recognise it. Yes. They'll think yes. possibly that it looks a little bit like a climbing hydrangea, but then they're aware that it isn't. Um, yeah. But it does fascinate people. And the flowers are really quite lovely. Big panicles of tiny sort of cream flowers. Yeah, they're great. And you get so many bees on them. Um, mm. I have mine one under, under my kitchen window and they're just alive with bees when it's in flower. So, yeah, that's a top plant. And uh, um, yeah, that's my always my recommendation for that particular conundrum of the garden. <laughs> it's a shame really we've only talked about house plants but you've got loads of knowledge to share for the well outside, i mean so. if you saw my garden right now you would probably be like rapidly running away from any <laughs> of my suggestions about about gardening because it's a real mess at the minute um but you know that's that's the cobbler's shoes scenario isn't it i'm sure we <laughs> yeah. all feel that about our gardens and um i am very much um ashamed of my lawn because I'm not a lawnatic I don't really like lawns but I have a dog who needs you know space to run around yeah but I my lawn is just whatever it whatever's green <laughs> it's what's there so um yeah I do um I, I love spending time my main thing I love doing in the garden really is my compost heap that is my absolute happy place and I just love um digging around in there and making compost that's my favorite thing to do We've been making masses of compost heaps very cheaply out of old pallets. Mm -hmm. um, we make them either as, as long rectangles or squares, wherever. And they're just throughout the garden because we were just find, we find ourselves where every time you come to cut down or clear an area, you just waste the stuff. Yeah. Um, so we, we've made masses of these compost heaps. And, you know, people are actually very interested in how to make compost. I mean, it saves you money, first of all. It puts oh, yes. the goodness back in that you've taken out of the soil, puts the goodness back. It's the most fantastic stuff. Um, and yeah, all you I do, agree. If you've got clean ground, I think that's the, the, the secret is to clean your ground and then put a three or four inch layer of compost, your own homemade compost on the top. You're right, you'll get a few seed, 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 weed seeds germinating. But, you know, that is going to improve the structure of your soil beyond belief. I wrote a piece for the FT about composting and I was talking about the existential feelings that composting brings me. And I don't know if this is just me, but I just philosophically, I just think compost is so interesting. And when I'm standing at the compost heap, like it, you, it sort of ties you into whole cycles of life and death and makes you think about your own mortality. <laughs> and I don't know, I just think it's an amazing thing. I would just say, if anyone wants to improve their mental health, just go and dig around in the compost. It makes you might, me righteous. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you get the occasional jump scare when a mouse jumps out at you. Um, you see some wildlife, sometimes not the wildlife you want to see, but sometimes you see interesting wildlife like slow worms and toads and things. It, I just absolutely love composting. And if I go to somebody's garden and, I, and there is no compost heap, I judge them so hard. I really do. I'm just like, gosh. You've got no compost heap. I, you are not a gardener. No, in my so. view. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I love composting. I, I want to be evangelical about it because I just think it's, it's so important. And yeah, as you say, and I'm a cheapskate, like it's free. That's the other yeah, great thing about it. it. And one other thing I would add to that is if you've got a compost heap and if you can make it where it gets some sun on it, you could grow cucumbers, you could grow melons, yeah. you could grow squash. 
And that's an ideal way of growing them because there's all that goodness in there, which they yeah. will on. Oh my gosh, that's so much fun. When I had an allotment, I used to do that and it was just so much fun. And mm. I like the fact that when you spread the homemade compost, you get the odd interesting seed because sometimes I've had some interesting tomatoes off, you know, yeah. a, a random volunteer seed. Um, you never know what you're going to get. It's a bit of fun. No, it is, you're right. <laughs> The Compost Appreciation Society. It's amazing, yeah. actually. In 77 episodes, I'm not sure we've actually had much chance to talk about compost. I'm glad <gasps> it finally wow. got to happen. You get so obsessed with the plants, but it's it's important to talk about the compost as well. So thank you, Jane, for bringing that to the party. Um, Alan Gray, final FOMO. Yeah. Have you got some FOMO to well, bring? I mean, I was going to say compost heaps, but I've been doing those. So um, <laughs> more. But, I mean, <laughs> Jane is just such an inspiration the way she explains it because it is just so important and I shall start judging people by their compost. <laughs> um, I'm just making myself out to be a horrible person here it, but yeah I mean we all judge when you go to somebody's garden you're looking around aren't you and you're sort of thinking oh yeah I like yeah. that shed or I like the way they've done that border and but yeah. that's the main thing I'm looking at and I, I guess it's just like any evangel evangelist I just want to force the compost heap on. I just want to go and buy them a compost heap or get them some pallets set up. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, I just, want to, I just want to say, are you aware of what you're missing? Because that, that's how I feel about it. But back to my flomo. My flomo is um, I'm very much getting into ferns. I love ferns, um, especially ferns in the garden. There's a blue one, um, which I've tr I'm trying out in the garden. It's been outside for three years. Okay, it's not looking terribly wonderful at this time of the year. It's an evergreen fern, but mm. it's still there and it will come back. Um, and there's uh, there are other ferns that I'm going to try in the garden. And they've got big, sort of long, frondy leaves, a bit like huge um, crane's feet. And, and they're just so lovely. And there's lots and lots of different patterns. Speaking to a friend of mine the other day, and she said, oh, I grow that outside. And I thought, well, if she can, I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do love a fern outside. And there is a, such an amazing world. I mean, the Victorians were fern mad, weren't they? But yeah, there's an yeah. amazing world of ferns to try. That well, I there's, haven't there's heard a of. Very large, large growing fern, hard shield fern called Blechnum chilensi. And I've, I've seen Blechnum chilensi growing down in the West Country. And it, the frond, fronds have been almost as tall as me, mm. five feet anyway. I'm a bit more than that. <laughs> Although you can't tell because I'm sitting down. Uh, <laughs> And they said to me, you won't grow that in Norfolk. Well, I can, I have, and I do. And it thrives. And there's, there, you know, there's several things about, like you were saying earlier, Jane, you know, look at what's below. Look at the plant, study the plant. Where does it grow? What does it like? If I put mulch all around the bottom of my Blechnum chilensi, its little rhizomes creep into that mulch and they make new plants. And that is the way to, to treat it. It's a bit like the hare's foot fern. I tried that outside. It died. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, experimentation is good, isn't it? And, you know, yeah. I mean, people are surprised. Um, I The one thing I want to try outside, the houseplant that I want to try outside is uh, Pilea pipromioides, which is yep. the Chinese money plant, which is, I did a whole chapter of the book on this. So it should, it is hardy. It should be hardy. It will die back, but it should grow back because it grows in Yunnan in China. And is the, the climate there is such that it should survive here. So that's my next experiment is to try that outside and see if it'll survive in my favorite I did the same thing a few years ago with a lemon tree. I stuck it, it got 
We've got too many pests on it. We've got a scale insect and goodness knows what. I got disgusted with it, stood it outside, and I thought, well, I'll put it in the garden. It grew. It's still there. Another one in my back courtyard, which is very, very sheltered, has a, has a fruit on it. So yeah. the only problem is when you open your garden to visitors, they do tend to nick things like that. Oh, yes. I can imagine. And what what's the oddest question you've ever had from a, a visitor? Hopefully not from me. <laughs> Oh, oddest question. I don't know, really. Aren't you lucky to have all this? Well, that, that's a person who doesn't know how much work goes into creating a garden, <laughs> isn't it? God. I know it is. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. 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 I suppose arguably we're all lucky to like plants. I suppose we're, we're all lucky to instinctively be drawn towards plants in, in some respect. I suppose we could be people who don't get it. There are people like that, like that thought is that just look at me and say, why? <laughs> and I say, what do you mean? Well, why? But I think those people are, you can get to those people. I think there are ways that, that, that sometimes you just need to find that one thing that fascinates them, that's okay. a way in. And sometimes those people can be converted. And I can't sort of talk about um, plant glasses that, you know, once you've got your plant glasses on, I'm actually not wearing my glasses today, but anyway, <laughs> um, once you've got your plant glasses on, you're walking down the street. And you're suddenly seeing weeds in the pavement and you're wondering about them. And I mean, in fact, I think Green Planet had um, had a thing about Symbolaria moralis last night. Lovely. Um, and I mean, I was just, I was just jumping up and down going, I love this plant. This is such a cool plant. Uh, you know, and you're driving down the M1 and you see um, there's a down. There's a particular junction of the M1 that has a lovely Helleborus fetidus growing on the verge. I yeah. always know that I'm going to be looking out for that plant because it's so darn cool. So you get your plant glasses on and suddenly you're seeing things that you never saw before. It was a blur of green before and suddenly things are in focus. So you can convert those people, hopefully. And don't you think as well that uh, like walk, going for a dog walk, going for a drive must be so boring when you're not mm. looking at the world with all these extra <laughs> things to see. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely true. And I think it only takes, you know, uh, taking somebody on a walk with you and just pointing out a few things and then suddenly people become fascinated. But I think it's just a nature it's a, it's a reflection of the fact that a lot of the time this information hasn't been passed on mm. um to to children and they're not being taught any of this stuff so you know i'm always amazed by how few trees people can recognize and i'm not saying i'm any kind of tree encyclopedia but you know i would hope that i can identify i don't know 30 40 tree species and some people can can only identify maybe holly so it's it's one of those things that i think we we need to be evangelistic of uh, uh, be evangelists for pl plants and um um hopefully without coming across as um as as bores but you know there's just we know how cool they are so we just want to spread the news don't we yeah. yes it's interesting isn't it? if you go back in time the plants like symbolaria which is on the planet thing last night um the, the old mind your business um whatever that was called they were originally grown underneath the staging in greenhouses to lift the, uh, the humidity, to give buoyancy to the atmosphere. And that's where they started. And so that's where RN, my forefathers, grew them. Um, and, you know, it was using plants to help you. But of course, as climate has changed, they've escaped. And I've got a, I've got a big patch of a mind your own business, as it's called, in one of my shady borders. And I love it because it's the, it's the lime yellow leaved mm. version of it. And it's like a little shaft of sunlight. Sun never gets to it, but that's what it looks like. And there's another plant that I grow and that has done exactly the same thing. And it's an Australian violet called Viola, Viola hederacea. 
Uh, little mauve and white flowers, practically the whole year, uh, most of all in late summer and through into the winter if the climate is, is, in, is enough. But I could go into that greenhouse today and I could pick you a bunch of violets, unscented, unfortunately. I could pick them nonetheless. And it's doing exactly the same thing. It's adding to the humidity of the greenhouse. Do you find yourself, uh, this is talking about going out for walks, I find myself, I guess probably in the next few weeks, sort of with my, literally lying on the ground when I find a patch of sweet violets. Yes. I mean, there's a really great patch of sweet violets outside the builder's supply, um, <laughs> where, which I pass by when I'm walking the dog to the country park. And um, it's it's a very unsalubrious location, but I have been known to lie flat to smell <laughs> these sweet violets because I just get so excited that they're flowering. And I mean, everyone else would just be looking at me going, what on earth? There's a small patch of purple over there, but it's just, it's such a lovely thing. It's such a lovely scent. And I'm just always excited to see them every year. It marks a certain time of the year. Um, so yeah, uh, I I think it's, just, I think it's a wonderful thing. It makes me appreciate every, I know that every time of the year, there's something that I'm going to be looking out for in the Absolutely. garden or, um, you know, in the wider world. Um, so yeah, it's and I similarly about dandelions, believe it or not. Don't think I'm mad, but dandelions on the verges of, yes. of the roadside in April and May can be mm. absolutely stunning. Yeah, um, and lots of people dismiss them because they're a garden weed. Um, but you know, see, seeing them grow naturally on the on the verges of roads is just wonderful. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, and just such brilliant plants of pollinators and such an interesting history. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love a dandelion. Yeah. There's so much to see everywhere, whether it's in the garden, on the roadside, outside the builders, merchants, or uh, indeed in our houses, <laughs> thanks to you, Jane Perone, for uh, inspiring us and helping us to propagate and choose our plants correctly and keep them happy and thriving. Um, I am already looking forward to your return visit to the podcast. I hope you'll come back again with even more show and tell but it has been an absolute riot thank you very much <laughs> my pleasure <laughs> everyone my pleasure. needs to go and subscribe to your podcast and all pre-order your book for whenever we get it and also you've got loads of merchandise as well so books yeah and t-shirts oh and my gosh it. yes yes it's all there and um yes and uh, if you ever get to actually meet me then you know no doubt I will have some kind of cutting on me to, to foist on you so prepare yourself <laughs> I'm looking forward to it <laughs> Until next time, happy gardening, everybody. Bye-bye. Happy gardening. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Mm -hmm.